Welcome to Heavy Strategy, where the questions are sometimes more interesting than the answers. Today, Greg and I are going to be talking about how to organize around strategy and architecture. So who should be on your team? How should they communicate? Greg, I know you have some passionate thoughts about that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I can see. <laughs> well, I think this one builds on the uh, the shows that we've done previously. We did a, done a show about you know, selecting technology projects, what is an enterprise architecture and why you need it. And, and what is and a strategy and why you need it? All those types of things. And this sort of builds on that because I like to think that the line that we drew with that, which was talking about what is enterprise architecture, then leads into how do you build a team around strategy? There's a linear story arc that joins the two together. And I guess my personal experience working for the companies that I've worked for over the years is that Enterprise architecture has been less than excellent. I don't actually remember too many times when it was actually working. Like, it's, we always seem to manage to make it work out well enough, but it wasn't because the, tech, the, the process worked or because it was much more of an ad hoc corporate grouping of people getting together and agreeing a strategy. But there was no way to codify it and, and give it to people who weren't participating. Like, it was a very participatory thing if that makes sense. So it was very team. And if somebody left, then the enterprise strategy was often disrupted because somebody else would come on board and they would have their personal preferences or the things that they knew about. And the previous person had a different perspective. And, and often enterprise architecture teams are incredibly small, usually one from each of the that's, disciplines. That's the challenge. And listening to you, I agree that most mm. of the time architecture strategy teams don't work. But from my perspective, a lot of that is because it suffers from smartest kid in the room syndrome. Mm. So you get a bunch of guys and gals who have climbed to the pinnacle of technology and then they have that, the, you know, mortarboard slapped on their shoulders saying, you are the best and the brightest, you are the architect. And so the natural inclination is to go into a room with your fellow best and brightest and you are the elite squad you are the you know navy seals of <laughs> of those, technology yeah you've been and you're going to do your level team, yeah. and you're going to do your level best to come up with an architecture and a strategy that is so much better than anyone else's mm. and the problem is if that's the core model it's not going to be internalized in the way that it needs to be internalized to be functional yeah and so one of the challenges is you have to come in and say okay i got picked to be to do enterprise architecture or enterprise strategy that means i'm almost and i hate to use this because it's so cliche right now but i'm a servant leader mm. my job is to capture a solid understanding of where this business or where this organization wants to go and then empower other people with subject matter expertise to help shape a strategy that will get us there. It's a very, very hard thing for many of us to do, but it means letting go of the arrogance mm. and letting go of the fact that we've worked really hard to climb all the way up to that ladder and we are clearly the smartest kid in the room mm. and just be like, you know what? Despite the fact that I'm the smartest kid in the room, I'm now going to listen to people that I'm convinced are stupider than I am because that's the only way it's going to work. And that human aspect is actually probably the root of most of the problems is that for the very longest time, most technologists were so good at the technology, they weren't very good at people. And that also comes down to that old thing about business. And I maintain that generally in technology, that human aspect has become more important. And we're seeing it, you know, the, the savant, you know, person in the corner who was an idiot savant, but was also 
nasty and unpleasant to be around and didn't care about the business was just you know focused on the discipline i think that by and large is dead and and has been dead for a long time and those people have been disempowered or appreciated more for what they can't do or what they don't do or how much damage they cause but i think what you highlight is the fact that enterprise architecture is a very emotional very people orientated activity although there's absolutely a technology core it becomes very it's a it's a soft skill i guess is what i'm saying as opposed to a hard I, skill. I i think you're exaggerating but i'm mm. going to go with it for now because i think there's a there's a strong component of truth to it what that means is the selection process for enterprise architects needs to be good at idea generation good at being a visionary but better at recognizing vision. Uh, there, there's a particular model of project management that talks about what, what your core responsibility is. And mm. you know, one of the questions is, is it your job to create this or is it your job to edit it? And if you look at like magazines, old school magazines or newspapers, oftentimes the reporter becomes the editor, but the best editors have a light touch but shape the reporting. It's kind of like you have to think about becoming an enterprise architect as getting promoted from being a subject matter expert to not being a subject matter expert and being an expert in drawing out the great ideas from others. Mm. And that's a huge switch, especially yeah. if you think about the way you climb the ladder to get there. It's like you get to the top. I know more about storage than anybody else. And I am representing storage on the enterprise architecture team. You guard that jealously. Yeah. And that flip of saying, and guess what? That and five bucks gets me a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I need to I need to start figuring well, the out. Challenge, the challenge, too, is that we've, over the years, or historically, it's less so going forward, I believe, is that we've also had people aligned very strongly to a vendor. Yeah. It's been very difficult to have, to be multi-skilled or multi-vendored. And many companies moved away from a multi-vendor strategy. And so the ability of people to, um, you know, understand... The, the features and functions of of or of different vendors and the the power or the capabilities of different solutions to some extent for a long time was very difficult was not a skill set that was easily found um, but I think that's changing today what we're seeing is the breakdown of this siloed silo by vendor has broken down just as much as we have siloed by skills so the days of I'm a storage or I'm a server or I'm a networking is now much more of I'm part of an infrastructure team. Yes, and, and I think that's a yeah, yeah. I, I agree, and I'm seeing that a lot more. Mm. And I completely agree. I want to highlight that point. You know, mm. if you look at your organization, forget the architecture team for a second. If you look at your organization and you have somebody that is who is, excuse me, who is implicitly or explicitly the Microsoft person, the Cisco person, the yeah. Fortinet person, you're doing it wrong. Right. Yeah. There should not, you know, I've, I've gone into clients and said, wait a minute, you need a collaboration team, not a Microsoft and Cisco team. And yeah. siloing by vendors is extremely bad. Siloing by discipline is has benefits, but ultimately needs to converge to this yeah. infrastructure. Well, I think in the new era, as infrastructure converges and software converges and becomes much more democratized, where business units can go and just buy a SaaS service without telling anybody. Um the whole that idea of silos as a way of creating excellence is actually passing away as the silos pass i think also the empathy part becomes much more natural in the in it yes. teams because they are all working together the networking person is expected to know servers and storage and i'll i'll hammer on this pony mm. a little bit more before we pivot to something else but there is something that's kind of important here which is 
part of wanting to be the expert is also just defensiveness. It's you build your you build your ego around your knowledge base, but then mm. what that at, at the extreme, what that means is you can never admit you're wrong or that somebody else might know more about something than you do. Yeah. As you de-siloize, it becomes the norm to be making decisions about something that you don't fully understand. And it should be acceptable to say, I'm sorry, I don't really understand the implications of the technology you just raised. Can you clarify? Yes. And that's and this a is very where, hard thing to say. Yeah. And this is where turning to outside parties can be useful. I'm yes. generally of the view, and I know you take an opposing view to this, which is absolutely inviolable. If you have a situation where you're, you have to be willing to accept the fact that you only know this technology, but there are other technologies out there that might be under consideration, and maybe you don't have the time or the will, you know, to go out and learn that other technology or you don't think it's a viable use of your time, then maybe you turn to an outside party. Now, a lot of people turn to resellers, which I think is generally a bad advice from resellers is generally not great because that you're very much dependent on the, the person is the product of the system that they come from. The reseller's goal is to sell you something. The advice comes as part of, and they tend to know what they know and what they don't know doesn't make them money, so they don't know it. Does that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would also further add that one of the necessary problems with resellers is that they have to align to particular vendors. See what we just said about aligning to vendors. That's a bad approach. So mm. the challenge is if you look to a reseller for an advisory services, you're going to get vendor-specific advice because that's what they resell. And I don't. I actually don't disagree with you on this one, Greg, that mm. outside outside counsel can be good. Where I was pushing back in an earlier episode was the outside counsel can't simply come in, listen to everybody, walk away, develop a strategy, come back and say, here's your strategy. Mm. And that's a thing I wanted to kind of pivot to this idea of whose input needs to come in. So yes, you need input across all the silos. You also need input from both engineering and operations before you set the strategy, because you want you want to hear, hey, this is going to be a problem to this is going to be a problem to engineer or you've just engineered something that's impossible to operate with our current team. Hmm. You want to know that well in advance. And so one of the challenges that you as an architect have is a developing all that empathy, reaching out to your colleagues and B, making sure that you really take aboard the concerns and issues of everyone else. I want to use an example, and I'm going to do a shout out to somebody who's a friend of mine. I believe he's now retired, but Fred Baker, many years ago, was the chairman of the Internet Engineering Task Force. And if you ask Fred, he would tell you this. He is not not and never was the best and brightest Internet engineer that ever existed. There are tons of people, Yakov Rector, Tony Lee, lots of people Mm. are super smart, Fred's particular strength was going around to all parties, even if they were stomping off in a huff saying, you didn't listen to my ideas, and bringing them back to the table and saying, look, I understand that you got chased out of here, but Mm. that was wrong, and we'd like to hear from you. And as a result, I'll I'll just wrap up this, that was the most productive time of the IETF's tenure was when Fred was chairing it. And it's a hard skill to have, and it requires... It Very requires an enormous well. amount of humility. For a long time, he had as a signature file, there's no limit to what can be accomplished if you don't care who gets the credit. Which is true. I always used to say to my employee, I'm just trying to go home. I don't care. You, you pay me the same whether I get credit or not. So. That used yeah, to make me very popular as a, as a contractor or a freelancer. I didn't want credit. I just wanted to get the money. Um, exactly. Go One of the interesting things is I wonder how much enterprise architecture has changed 
in the era of subscription. So one of the things that I'm seeing is we talk, you know, this era of licensing features and subscriptions. So this concept of, you know, paying for your license fees every month or every quarter or, or whatever, right? Technology has shifted from the selling dropship, mm-hmm. sell it and, and ship it type model to very much an operational model. The vendors are now very focused on the operational features of their product because if you're buying your license every month, every three months, you've got to be getting value from it. Otherwise, you might stop. Does that make sense? And I wonder how much that shift to operational models, how much that day two, uh, you know, somebody once said to me, he said, day zero and day one are just one day. Day two is forever. And I really like that. And and the shift- That is good, yeah. The shift with subscription models, although I, I think a lot of companies will struggle with the subscription model because it changes- that it has accounting impacts, but it also has a social impact. I wonder if enterprise architecture is being substantially modified by operations and this idea of we buy it, we pay for it, and everything is so operational. Like storage used to just come with a, a, a clunky CLI, and now it comes with a monitoring engine and an observability, and it has external components that backups to the cloud or backups to off-prem sites. I wonder how much that's changing enterprise architecture. I think it's definitely changing. You know, I guess I was born an old fogey because I don't see any changes that we haven't seen before. If you look all the way back in the history of IT, I I remember in college, I didn't want to get into IT because I said, there's no engineering involved. Like everything's already built. You're just buying products Hmm. and hooking them together. And what I underestimated as a college students are want to do is the complexity of hooking together pre-built products. But even then, there was mostly hardware. And when software came along and you had a fully functional system or quote-unquote solution, which meant it had hardware, software, and some operational component, you you, you still had to worry about hooking everything together. And I think what I see happening is the same thing that's happened every time is Somebody will get in, get become a specialist at hooking pieces of hardware together, and then a piece of software comes along that obviates that particular need. But now you have the requirement of hooking pieces of software together. And so we've just gone up one more level and saying, oh, now we have to hook these services together. And every service, you know, every subscription offering comes with its own dashboard, but you only want one dashboard. So how do you hook those together? Hmm. And how do you translate that into selection criteria? Which kind of brings me to my other point. If you've come away with the idea that being an enterprise architect requires not so much the world's best technical chops, but good enough technical chops plus humility and Mm. inclusiveness. Mm. Let me push a little bit humility, empathy, and inclusiveness. Mm. Let me push a little bit on that inclusiveness piece because Greg just made a, a cogent case for why operations is much more important piece of enterprise architecture than it was. I'm going to push this out further and say you need to be talking to a lot of folks like your legal team and your procurement team as part of setting the architecture. Because if building something is placing you in legal liability, you kind of want to know that early on before you sign on on to it. Similarly, if there's, and I mentioned selection criteria earlier, but if you start arriving at this idea that we want to buy services that integrate into a common dashboard, and therefore one of the selection criteria is integrates into a common dashboard, procurement needs to understand that's not a nice to have, that's a need to have. And that they can't just give that away as they're negotiating. So, for example, a solution may not have that integration built, but the vendor may promise to build it. Yeah. That's the kind of thing that procurement needs to hold fast on. But they need to understand why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it comes down to, you know, well, we were talking about this earlier, Greg, of this the need for empathy and seeing the world from someone else's point of view, mm. which 
I used to think humans were naturally good at because yeah. your average four-year-old has a lot of empathy. <laughs> but as we all know, you tend to lose it about the time you become 14 and some of us never regain it. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I just, I've, I've seen far more dysfunctional architecture teams. But I think also that was also because when I was doing enterprise architecture, change was in the air. There was so much change happening. In the last 20 years, enterprise has moved from being, uh, sorry, technology has moved from being a cost center to being a profit center. It's not because it sells or makes money. It's because profitability is derived from productivity or a competitive edge or product improvement or process improvement. Yeah, they just, they just call it digital transformation, but mm. it's still technology generating profit. And so there's been that part of it, which I think is a very, if you're working for an organization and they are not looking at IT as a profit center, still seeing it as a cost center, then enterprise architecture nearly always fails because everything comes down to a dollar. And it always just ends up being, we'll just go with the vendor. And the best you can come up with as an architecture is deal with these named vendors because the solution won't suck or because we right. get leverage, right? Uh, well, I, I would say you're you're right on the right path, but I would say you're a little limited by saying profitability because there's a lot more that can be generated, you know, that ultimately translates to profitability. I mean, at the end of the day, there's really only a handful of things that anyone's in business for. New dollars. You know, which is revenue, saved dollars, which generates profitability, forced dollars, which is compliance, and mm. that's about it. Mm. Uh, so everything comes down to all of those things. But along the way, there are sub-goals that can be perceived as important because there is a clear relationship between them and the, the ultimate goals, and one of those is speed. Mm. And one of the, you know, sometimes people ask me, how do I justify an architecture team? Because, Jonna, what you're talking about is taking our most expensive people training them if necessary to become more empathetic to make decisions differently than they have that's expensive that's mm. time consuming why would i invest all this when i could just go to the vendor a good architecture delivers speed because you know it's going to work because you've thought through all the ways in which it's not going to work and you yeah. made decisions and guess, that preclude those those cul-de-sacs yeah basically. and thinking about what doesn't work is actually more important than thinking about what does work like a lot of times in organizations you say you know, somebody who would come and go fairly quickly through many companies, you'd say, why didn't you do it this way? And the reason would would be because of our reason. Some, right, because sometimes, reason. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes yeah. sometimes there were good reasons, sometimes there were bad reasons. And sometimes asking the question would get a hostile response. And sometimes, you know, the life the world is full of, full of unusual people. I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask is, would you include uh, people outside of IT in your enterprise architecture. I absolutely. That's why yeah. I just said you need you need to loop in legal. You need to loop in procurement, and you absolutely have to have a regular cadence of conversations with business stakeholders. Just to give an example, and let's not fixate on this, but I I'm a big proponent of technology principles. One that's easy to understand is you know cloudify where possible. And I'm not saying this is the right principle. I'm just saying that's, that is a principle that some companies, many companies yeah. have adopted. Mm. It's very, very important to have a conversation on an ongoing basis that says, here is our general technology strategy, cloudify where possible. Where possible may mean that workloads can't be productively shifted to the cloud, but it may also mean that for legal or compliance reasons, they shouldn't be shifted to the cloud. Mm. And legal needs to understand both pieces of that technology principle, cloudify where, cloudify where possible. And they need to understand that, yes, I can actually put a monkey wrench, you know, or as you guys call it, a spanner in the works saying, 
uh, no, you can't cloudify this particular workload for these reasons, and then work around it. You know, either we determine that our workload pr placement process will exclude those workloads from the cloud, or gee, let's modify how we approach, you know, legal liability and compliance. Maybe we get a different form of insurance or something. Yeah. My, my point isn't that that to promote cloudifying or promote insurance or any of that. My point is that entire conversation requires an early and often discussion with legal. I think I'm going to disagree quite strongly sure, here because I think having, if you're for. talking about IT uh, strategy, or IT architecture, and expecting people outside of IT to participate is probably... Now, that doesn't mean that there's not necessarily in certain use cases, like if you've got an accounting user who's a power, you know, some maybe including the CFO or his delegate or something like that in strategy because it impacts the accounting system or if there's a some sort of key line of business stuff. That's not to say don't include those, but in terms of saying, oh, well, I've got enterprise architecture, therefore I need a representative from HR and that doesn't make Stop. sense to me. Well, you're wrong, yeah. um, but I think you're wrong for a very understandable reason, yeah. because obviously to, de to develop an architecture, you need a re regular cadence of meetings, whether they're weekly, biweekly, daily, whatever it is. Yeah. And no, I'm not recommending that that legal sit through all the relentlessly boring discussions about technology. Mm -hmm. What I kind of envision is, and I've seen it work very effectively, kind of a set of concentric circles where yeah. at the core, you have your core architecture team then each ring is the people who get looped in with decreasing frequency. But the key is, and this is the, the important thing, even if you only talk to legal once a year as part of your strategy, it's not an outreach to legal. Yeah. Listening not... their input. I... And that's, I, I would say, I'm sorry, you can't do an effective architecture. That's probably why your architectures that you've seen aren't effective because you need to hear from them as part of the discussion. Yeah, I mean, in a purist point of view, I agree. But, you know, most lawyers or legal people I've spoken to would be horrified to think that they'd be required to participate with the IT team because, you know, it's the... Ah, that's, that's where I'm just going to say you're yeah. an old fogey because that's changed with the whole digital transformation thing. Yeah. A lot of people, lawyers, lawyers, procurement, everybody is running around. They know how important technology is. Yeah. And so they're actually delighted to be involved in it and to be able to ask questions. I'm Short side note, mm. I was talking to the CISO of an organization that was using blockchain internally for, um, you know, for essentially contract validation internally. Finance came in and said, oh, my God, we're using cryptocurrencies. What are you talking about? <laughs> and she, the CISO just had to laugh and explain the difference between blockchain and cryptocurrencies yeah. and that they were entirely different things and that these contracts involve paying people with, as she put it, legitimate money money that is actually recognized by governments yes and finance just relaxed but yeah. finance needed to hear that yeah as part you know and those conversations have to continue to happen yeah i just i don't know i just when i was in company that the the my instinct is when to say these I are was all a boy. meetings Sorry. that i had with those sorts of things they might have started off well but they degraded pretty quickly over time like creating a sustainable strategy is an incredibly difficult thing to do to make it meaningful to a wide range of people and a wide range but of it disciplines. Ha but it has to be because mm. if it isn't meaningful, you know, if technology is the backbone of your company and if it's not, yeah. then you're a very unusual company. If it is, then the rest of the company has to understand at a certain level. Yeah. And I just want to kind of, because I'm keeping an eye on the clock here and I yeah, know we've yeah, been yeah, we yammering along as we do, but yeah. 
I do want to highlight a statistic that came up from some of our recent research. We've been doing some research into how well IT executives communicate to the board. And one fun thing was we interviewed a number of CEOs and board members, and we found that that across across the board, no pun intended, um, generally business executives do a pretty decent job communicating, but IT executives in particular are more than 30% less effective hmm. than their peers in other businesses. So another key thing is that highlights to me that there is a gap in communicating technology to business. And in fact, that's what the CEOs told us there was. Yeah. So I think that is the necessary gap that needs to be Yeah, filled. again, I, I think that comes back to the original IT skill. IT wasn't valued in a certain way historically, and that skill wasn't valued in your IT team over time. I just want to touch on one last thing. I'll tell you the hardest thing as an enterprise architecture and how you can actually measure some sort of success, and that's how you kill something. So if you've got a technology or a, you know some sort of capability going on in your organization and you've decided that it, it needs to go, getting an enterprise architecture team to come around to that and to agree to that, that's actually a test of success in my mind. So if you want a, a quick litmus test, how often does your you know your enterprise architecture process kill something off and how does it go about that? That would be my benchmark for success. Not what you do, it's what you do negatively in this case. I would agree completely mm. and proof positive we have such a hard time killing or ending these podcasts. Yeah. But <laughs> no, end of lifing is actually something I, I would I would further suggest that you know you have a problem mm. if you don't have an end of life written into your roadmap. Yeah. Um, and we actually we do color coded roadmaps and I'm I always fight because the end of life is this beautiful sort of russet sunset color. And it's like it's done for a reason. It's like, yes, the mm. sun is setting and this technology is being taken out. Yeah. And by the way, what's the process for that? Yes. And you're completely correct. If there isn't a process, then you yes. just you just I, failed the enterprise. I'll tell you my horror job. story is sitting in a meeting, an enterprise architecture meeting and about Internet Explorer 8 and the company oh, deciding sh- to spend millions on a compatibility interface so they could keep using oh, it instead God. of switching to Firefox. Instead instead of saying suck it up everybody as of yeah. June 1st blah 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. They spent millions and 6 months later Microsoft DOL did anyway. But anyway, different. All right. Well, I think that was uh, enough well, for one day. Um thanks, Greg, Derek. where can folks find you? You can find me over on packetpushes.net. That's where this is published. If you've enjoyed today's show, it'd be very helpful if you tell your friends about it and get them listening because we want to grow the show a little bit more and get some more happening here. It's what keeps us motivated at the end of the day is having people listen. And at some point, we want to be able to make a little bit of money out of it and get some sponsors on board. Not because we particularly need to be rich, but we do need to be compensated for our time on a fair and reasonable basis. We've now done quite, you know, nearly 30 shows and uh, it's time for us to get some growth happening. So please tell your friends, talk about it on social media, tell people around the place about it, and that would be very helpful to us. Yeah, and I would just want to add the other thing that keeps us motivated is when you give us feedback. Uh, Whenever we get feedback, Greg immediately slacks it to me and we sort of discuss it. Good, bad, indifferent, we love feedback. So Greg, where can they go for feedback? Packetpushes.net slash F-U, that's F-U, short for follow-up. Follow-up, yes. Uh Follow-up, yeah. (laughs) Negative feedback is just as good because sometimes it's very difficult to listen to yourself and so forth, so do send it over. As always, remember that here at Heavy Strategy, what we're trying to do is ask questions you're the person in the frame for the answers. So hopefully we've helped you get some thoughts going and uh, given you something to think about. Thanks so much for listening.